Uh, if you've got your Bible with you today, uh, turn to 1 John, go uh, back towards the end of the New Testament to 1 John uh, chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1, and uh, we'll get there in, in just a moment. My, uh, my name's Paul Mumaw, and I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis, and uh, we love having you here with us today. And if you're new, uh, you may or may not know that we've been in a series here at Genesis all year long, a series we've called The Story. Uh, we're reading through the Bible together in a year, talking about it here on Sunday mornings, and uh, today, uh, we're in chapter 26 of the story, if you've been using that as a resource, uh, a chapter entitled The Hour of Darkness. And uh, we're going to look at that in just a moment. We're going to look at some of these final events leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. But before we go there, uh, I want to look at this passage with you in 1 John chapter 2, uh, these words written by John uh, to the followers of Jesus, to Christians, really are so foundational. Uh, to everything we believe. In fact, if you've ever wondered to yourself, you know, what it means to call yourself a Christian or what it means to call yourself a follower of Jesus, these verses get to the very heart of the matter. Let's look at them together. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, John writes this, my dear children, and when he says those words, he is saying those words with great tenderness and great love. He says, I, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Just notice right at the very beginning of this selection, he points out that Jesus is that perfect sacrifice for us. We've been talking about some of that. I mean, he is, he is the reason. I mean, he is the answer. He is the solution to the problem of sin. I mean, one of the greatest things that you could ever do in your life is to respond to a love like that, to surrender your heart and your life to a love like that, and to receive Christ's forgiveness into your own life. But it's not just a once and done sort of thing that you never come back to again. I mean, there was some great scholar that once said, you know, that you know, the greatest thing that we could do as Christians would be to, 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 to go back to the gospel message of Jesus Christ every single day, like to begin your day, you know, with that good news. And so John points out from the very beginning of, hey, here's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's understanding, it's grasping, it's gripping onto this knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, that He is the perfect sacrifice. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anybody obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And then here's the key, here's what He says. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. John says, hey, I'm just going to tell you what the distinguishing mark is in his people, in his children. It's those who live obediently. It's those who make it this priority in their life to say, in everything that I do, I want to live as that man lived. I want to live as the one who gave his life for me. Now, does that mean that if we're in Christ that we better, you know, be perfect or else? No, that's not what he's saying. I, I, I think we all know that that's impossible, but what he is saying is it does mean that in every area of our life, we try and grow a little bit more every day in such a way to say we're growing like Jesus. We're growing to live as he lived, to practice the behavior he modeled in everything as one of his children, as his follower. And so what we're going to do today is I want us to keep this in mind as we look at this final week in Jesus' life. And we're going to pick out four uh, specific places, four specific locations where Jesus visited. And we're going to talk about not only those locations, 
Uh, but we're going to talk about what we see in Jesus and what we learn from Jesus in those places. And, and my prayer and my hope is that, that we're ready to respond to them, that we're ready to say, you know, God, what do you have in mind for me today, and how can I go put that into practice? So will you join with me in prayer? Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for these words and for this truth. We thank you uh, that Jesus Christ is your gift, uh, your solution to the problem of sin in this world for our lives and for those uh, who do not yet know Jesus yet. And God, I pray that that truth would be at the very foundation, the heart of everything we do every single day. Um, But I also pray, Lord, for our response. And uh, God, I just pray that you would never, um, you would never quit growing us, uh, that, that that desire, that heart, that hunger, that appetite for more of you, God, would, would never cease here in this church and in the lives of all who come today, God, but that it would be our desire to say, I want to live like him in anything and everything that I do. And so we pray for that today, and we pray that your spirit would just prompt us in different ways here this morning, Lord, and then we'd be ready to walk out of these doors in just a bit and say, now that's how I'm going to go live. And we pray that you give us the strength and the courage to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to look at four places, four locations with you and four lessons that we see in Jesus. If you're taking notes uh, and you want to follow along with us, the first one is this. The first location we see uh, is the streets of Jerusalem, and the lesson that we learn is that Jesus, what he does there is he models courage uh, for us. Look at Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be jumping all over the place today, Uh, so if you can keep up, great. Uh, If you can't, all of those texts are for you in the notes, and we'll have them for you on the screen too, but uh, Matthew chapter 21. Uh, beginning in verse 7, it says, They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large, large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Uh, the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven." Now, if you were around uh, with us last week, you probably remembered what happened in that Jesus raised Lazarus uh, from the dead. And this did a lot, as you can imagine, for Jesus' popularity. I mean, the crowds had previously heard all of the rumors of the healings and uh, the story of, uh, of those who were blind now seeing and the sick now better. And now, though, a dead man who has come back to life. And so all of a sudden, there's a bunch more people uh, that start believing that Jesus might be uh, this promised Messiah. And we see this in their reaction. Uh, They shout, they proclaim, Hosanna. I mean, those words mean save us. Uh, They mean rescue us. I mean, it's a praise intended and meant for a king. I mean, the people gathered on the streets of Jerusalem the day we call Palm Sunday, and they were ready to crown Jesus king. I mean, they were ready for him to step in and and to, you know, to take over, to kick out the Romans and, and to rule the world. But the irony is that while the people were shouting and praising Jesus, well, at least for Jesus on the inside, he was hurting. And here's why. Look at Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 41. Here's what Luke records. It says, as he approached Jerusalem, all right, even before he gets into the city and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but is now hidden from your eyes. Notice that Jesus is weeping for them. He's hurting for them. And why? Well, Jesus knew what was going to happen. I mean, he knew they were going to turn on him. 
Uh, he knew they were going to reject him. And not only that, but Jesus knew that as he was riding into town, he was just another day closer to his death and a death and a word and a promise that he had even shared with his disciples. Uh, the gospel writer Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. You know, before he even started this journey into town, he said to them in verse 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and on the way he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. I just want you to notice that the cross wasn't sneaking up on Jesus. Like he knew it was coming. I mean, Jesus knew these things. I mean, he knew that he was going to die a painful and a brutal death. But what's so fascinating to me is that even in knowing this, even in knowing that he'd be betrayed, even in knowing that he, he would be rejected, he was courageous. Our Savior, Jesus, he modeled courage for us. I mean, Jesus knew what was coming even as he saddled up on this donkey. And do you know what? Like Jesus... There are going to be times and situations in your life that are going to require bold and courageous steps, just like we see here in Jesus. Um, Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 51, uh, records it this way. Luke writes, you know, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, that's an interesting word. I mean, that word resolutely means confidence. It means that he was focused. It means that he was very determined. He was courageous in his steps. And it's important to understand the context of what's happening here too. I mean, Jesus coming to town on what we know as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the Passover, uh, the, it's significant. I mean, it really is when you look at it. I mean, the Passover is the Jewish holiday that celebrates when Moses unleashed the 10 plagues on the people of Egypt. And if you remember, uh, way back in the story, way back uh, last winter, uh, you remember that last plague where Moses told the Pharaoh, let my people go or the firstborn in every family will die. Well, in order for the Israelites to escape this punishment and this death, they were instructed to take the blood of an unblemished lamb and spread it on the doorposts of their home, and then when the death angel would pass over their home, the lives of the family members of that particular home coated with the blood of the lamb would be spared. Well, from that day forward, the Jews celebrated Passover as their most sacred holiday of the year. I mean, Passover then was celebrated from that point forward by the, the sacrifice of a lamb, and the blood of that lamb was sprinkled on the doorposts of their homes. Well, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the Sunday before Passover. That's why there were so many people in town. They were coming from all over the region to celebrate this most sacred holiday. And so that adds to the festive spirit on this particular Palm Sunday. And here's what's really cool to me. The Sunday before Passover could be called Lamb Selection Sunday. And here's why. It was the traditional day when those who were buying young lambs without blemishes selected and purchased those lambs. Those lambs would then be sacrificed later in the week, and it just happened to be the very same day that Jesus came riding into town. Coincidence? Absolutely not. I mean, it's Jesus, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, the one who would take away the sins of the world. Now, the crowd didn't get it. 
All right, they weren't putting all these pieces together. But again, knowing what was ahead of him, Jesus models for us courage. Look at what William Barclay uh, said about this. He said about Jesus and his courage. He says, it was an act of glorious defiance and superlative courage for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. I mean, by this time, there was a price on his head. It would have been natural that if he was going to Jerusalem, uh, if he was going there at all, he would have slipped in unseen and hidden himself in some secret place in the back streets. But he entered in such a way as to focus all the limelight on himself and occupy the center of the stage. It's breathtaking to think about a man with a price on his head, deliberately riding into the city in such a way that every eye was fixed on him. It's impossible to exaggerate the sheer courage of Jesus. You know, you're going to find yourself in times and situations that are going to require some courage of you. I mean, sometimes it takes courage to, you know, have a conversation with a friend and maybe over an important matter, maybe you, what you would consider a spiritual matter, and it's going to take some courage to take that conversation a little further to the point that maybe you even start sharing some of your faith. It takes courage. I mean, it takes courage to tell a teenager no. And you don't want to tell them no to be mean, but you want to tell them no because you know what, what's best. And sometimes that takes courage. I mean, it takes courage to break off a dating relationship, you know, when, when you know and realize their boundaries are being compromised and you're not sharing the same values anymore. Uh, it takes courage to apologize to your spouse, even when you're hurt too. And it takes courage to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And if you've been fighting and resisting it for so long, it takes courage to do something like that. It takes courage to follow in Christ's example and maybe take a step with something like baptism. But John says, live like Jesus. He says, hey, that's your example. That's the model in everything you do. Jesus modeled courage for us, and because he did, we can do the same too. It takes courage to make living for Jesus. It really does. It takes courage to make living for Jesus the number one and absolute priority in your life. But I promise you, there is no other life. Uh, worth living. And we're not on our own either. As Paul later wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Where's that courage come from? It's not just something where I dig deep and find it. No, it's I can do all things through Jesus Christ, the one who gives me strength, the one who gives me courage. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He knew what he, he was going to die. Uh, he was courageous anyways. That was Sunday. Let's fast forward now uh, to Thursday of the same week. And what does Thursday mean? Well, Thursday means this. Uh, you've seen a picture like this, a similar picture many times. Uh, we're talking about the Last Supper. Turn over to John 13. The Gospel of John, uh, chapter 13, because it's here where we step into the upper room of a house where Jesus and his 12 disciples are meeting together. And the timing, again, is very interesting uh, because Jesus had been listening to his disciples argue about who was the best, uh, who was the greatest. And um, I wonder if they were always competing to, you know, when you think about the disciples, like I think about my two boys. Uh, so I've got a, a seven-year-old boy, Luke, and a 10-year-old boy, Joel, and they're always competing over everything. For example, we were in the van the other day, and I gave each of them a tic-tac, a tic-tac. And all of a sudden, I hear in the back a few minutes later, Joel, do you still have your tic-tac in your mouth? They were competing to see who could hold the tic-tac in their mouth the longest, or maybe they were, they, they were trying to figure out who could suck it the quickest, you know, and that it would dissolve or something. So there's always this competition, you know, who's the greatest, right? And maybe we see a little bit of that in the disciples too, and, and they're arguing, and they sound like little kids, but, 
but maybe we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves because you know we all have a little bit of this in us because how quickly the disciples forgot what Jesus had said. I mean, just before his arrival into Jerusalem, he reminded them in Mark 10, 45, he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, notice that Jesus says, I I didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give, you know, to die. And and if there was any lesson that Jesus taught more than once over and over again, it was this one, but the disciples just had a hard time learning this lesson. I mean, much like us, you know, they lived in a world that really didn't work that way. You know, Jesus taught things like, you know, the first will be last. Uh, Jesus taught things like, if you want to be great, then you become a servant. But but that's not the world they lived in. You know, that, that's not the world we live in either. I mean, Kyle Eidelman says it like this. I mean, we don't want to turn the other cheek. We want to even the score. Uh, we don't want to pray for our enemies. We want to defeat and crush our enemies. I mean, in this world, you elbow and cut and fight your way to the front of the line. And if you want to be exalted in this world, then you better do something to get notice. You better do something to stand out that forces you into the spotlight. But here's the attitude of Jesus in John 13, verse 4. It says, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You know, in Jesus' day, this particular task, the task of washing feet was reserved for the lowest of low servants. And, and you would think or that you would hope that one of the disciples would jump in at some point and take this job from Jesus, but they were waiting for someone else to go first. And so as they waited, Jesus just kept kneeling and He kept washing and He washed their feet. And once He finished washing, skip over to verse 14. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If you haven't figured it out already in your notes, second location is the upper room. The second lesson we see in Jesus is that Jesus models service for us. And He didn't come into this world to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to get noticed, to be recognized, rewarded, elected, or crowned. He walked away from all of that, and He set aside all of those things to come and to serve. And what does that mean for you and me? Well, John 13, 14, and 15 again, He says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You know, I used to serve at a church where every Thursday, every Maundy Thursday, uh, we'd have a service in our church, a service that would involve communion, but not only communion, uh, this service would involve foot washing. And so we would gather in a room together, and typically what we would do in our church is that all the men would go to one portion of the church, and all of the women in another portion, and then families could stay together, and so they might go to a different room in the church. But we would have this time where you would simply go around the room with a basin, and you could wash people's feet. You would have your feet wash. I, I got to be honest, I, I disliked it. It was my least favorite service of the entire year, you know, because as you're there, it's like it's dirty work and it's very humbling, but all the while, it's like God's whispering in your ear. That's, that's the point. I mean, it's the point. And, and, you know, when it comes to your life, when it comes to my life and the way you live for Christ, 
just make it a point to wash feet. Um, take on the attitude of a servant and serve. And, you know, I, I don't know what that means for you. I don't know how that breaks down for you right now in your life or in your context. I, I, I don't know where you're currently serving. I, I don't know where in your life where you need to, to serve more. And this kind of serving that Jesus talks about applies to anything and everything. But, but I'll tell you, if you're looking for somewhere to serve right now, if you're looking for somewhere to get started or a way of growing in your faith and in your life, you can serve through this church. I mean, it takes every single one of us. Uh, to do the work that we believe that God has called us to do. And so we're always in a place where we could use more volunteers. We can use those who are willing to serve in just about every ministry uh, that we have. I'll, I'll tell you very specifically right now, you know, we've started a Sunday night service to reach more people. And it's been fun to reach some really new people that haven't been able to attend church uh, in the past. But because of the time, it works well. I'll tell you where we could use some volunteers and some help right now. We, we could use 50 people from Sunday morning that would say, you know what, for six months I'm going to go make that my service. Uh, for six months I'm going to go, I'm going to be available, I'm going to worship with that community, I'm going to serve in that community and really help us get off to a great start. Um, you know, maybe in your life right now, maybe you need to identify, you know, who the poor and the hurting are around you and make yourself available uh, to serve. Um, if you didn't realize this, you've got plenty of opportunities to serve through your kid's school. You know, or maybe the sports leagues that your kids play in. Maybe, maybe God's prompting you to do some more serving at home, uh, in your neighborhood, uh, where, you're, where you work or on your college campus. Or, or, or what does it mean for you to take on this attitude where you're very intentional about serving the members of your family, uh, your parents, uh, or even your spouse? And I'll just stop there and just add that sometimes that's the hardest especially if you find yourself in a difficult situation right now. I mean, it can, it can be very challenging to serve the people who are closest to you. I mean, think about it. I mean, how do you serve a husband who isn't thoughtful of your needs? Or how do you serve a, a wife who just seems to never have anything positive to say? Or how do you serve a child that hasn't said thank you in years? Or how do you serve a coworker who just has this reputation for stabbing you in the back or stabbing others in the back? How do, you, how do you serve a friend that's always taking and there's no giving whatsoever? But before we go discounting or disqualifying uh, others, please note something, that not only did Jesus wash the feet of his disciples, but he didn't discriminate in that service either. I mean, he washed Peter's feet. Peter was going to deny him. He washed Thomas's feet. Thomas would doubt. And he washed Judas's feet, and he's going to betray Jesus. And so how do you do it? How do I do it? I mean, how do you serve? How do you live like that? I mean, you got to look to Jesus. I mean, he's the best example. I mean, that sort of strength comes from heaven. It's that Philippians 4.13 again, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength. And remember this too. I mean, serving's not about giving no, getting noticed. I mean, it's not about what we get from it. I was, uh, I was sitting in Starbucks the other day, and I was sitting across the table from this man, and we just got to talking about what I was doing, and, you know, hey, you're a pastor, and, well, he went to another church, and so he started talking to me. We started talking about serving, and he was telling me about what his pastor says, and I really like it. He says, you know, don't serve to be seen, but be seen serving. You know, don't do it so that you, you, so people see you, but just get caught serving over and over again. Make it a part of your lifestyle. I, um, 
I, I serve as a volunteer coach for my, uh, bo- my boys running a cross-country league. It's cross-country and track uh, club, and it's been a lot of fun together. And this, uh, I've got a boy, I've got a seven-year-old boy on my team, the, the, the portion of kids that I help coach, that this past summer, uh, he was running uh, with the track team, and he won the state competition as a, as a seven-year-old boy for his age group. He won the 1,500 meters, so almost a mile. Get this, 610. He ran it in six minutes and 10 seconds. When I go out for a run with these kids, like, I mean, I really have to book it. I, I mean, because I, I've got the watch. I mean, you've got to finish before them if you've got the watch. And every, I play my cards right. I mean, every once in a while when I'm getting tired and they're still pushing up, hey, I'm going to fall back a little bit and just, you know, kind of watch you, you know, from the back of the crowd or whatever. But, but anyway, so we've got this kid on our team, and he, he won the 1,500. And then a the couple of weeks later, he ran in the Midwest Regional. And there were eight kids running in this particular race. And, well, he finished about a minute, almost two minutes slower than he had done in the state meet, finished seventh out of eight kids. And his parents, I was talking to his parents the other day, they were telling me that, you know, afterwards they were a little frustrated, you know, like a little surprised, you know, you know, I mean, what happened? I mean, you have got the capability of running a 6'10", and you ran almost eight minutes. And so, you know, after time had passed a little bit, they just asked him one day, hey, what happened? Um, you know, I mean, were you not feeling well or, you know, and just trying to consider what went into that. And, and, and his reply was, no, my I knew my friend was going to finish last, and I didn't want him to finish by himself. And uh, so, like, they were just a little struck in that moment of, oh, all right. I mean, you know, I, mean, I guess this is what we're training this kid to do. Now, I'm not in any way saying that we shouldn't have wins and losses in sports and we should give a medal to everybody or forbid kids from playing tag at recess, all right? That's not what I'm saying in this. But with this kid, that's the attitude. That's the point. We're called to serve. And on the final night of Jesus' life, I mean, you'd think he should be thinking about himself a little bit more. I mean, he's got very little time left. But instead of thinking about himself, he set for us an example and he models service. And sometimes, like Jesus, we just need to grab a towel and we need to wash some feet too. And so Jesus served and he demonstrated life for his disciples, and then he headed out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Pick it up again in Matthew uh, 26, uh, verse 38. Matthew records it like this. He says, then he said to them, Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here, he said to his disciples, and keep watch with me. And so the Bible explains that Jesus went into this garden and he was so deep into prayer that his sweat was like blood. I mean, there was such intense pain, there was such intense agony in that moment that he was experiencing that his sweat was like blood and potentially uh, it was blood. And, And I think it's worth saying that while he was courageous, please see that in his humanity, there was still some fear. Courage doesn't mean the absence of fear. Courage means a willingness to keep moving forward even in that fear. And I appreciate what Tim Harlow said about this uh, Jesus in this moment. He said, you know, in the most epic tug of war, the battle between the flesh and the spirit, Jesus was pleasing himself. It was between pleasing himself. He was caught in the middle of pleasing himself and obeying his Father's will. Well, that verse continues in verse 39. It says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. The third location is the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And what's Jesus' model for us? Jesus models prayer. Hey, when you face difficult situations, uh, when you find yourself in challenging circumstances and you're facing fear and looking for strength and looking for courage, the first thing, 
the most important thing you can do is pray. And again, verse 39, it says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will, he said. You know, Jesus offered this prayer or a similar prayer three times, and uh, he kept referring to the cup. And often in Scripture, the cup represents someone's life. It's a way of that Jesus was saying, you know, Father, do I really need to do this? Uh, is there any other way, he's asking. And really what we see happening is that in some special sort of divine way, God seems to impress on Jesus that there is no other way. It was almost God's way of underscoring what Jesus had previously said to his disciples just a little while before in John 14, 6, when Jesus answered them, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, it's God's way of saying, remember, Jesus, you're the way. You are the solution. I mean, there is no other way. You are the truth. You are the life. No one comes to the Father unless you do this. This is the plan. Your sacrifice is the only way that sin gets dealt with once and for all. And that's so important to be reminded of because, you know, there is a disease called sin, and we all have it. And the Bible teaches that this this disease is terminal, but Paul writes, and he says this about sin in Romans, that the wages of sin is death. But again, it's what, like John says, we looked at it just a moment ago, way back in 1 John chapter 2, in the very beginning here, where he says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, though, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. You see, God provided a solution to the problem of sin. It's from Him, you know, which means that the solution to your greatest sins and my greatest sins is not cleaning up your act. It's not what you can do for yourself. It's not about, you know, the lifestyle that you can hope to achieve or this record of perfection that you somehow strive for. No, the only way to be saved, the only solution to the problem of sin in my life and in your life is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the free gift of forgiveness that He offers to anyone who will receive it, who will surrender their lives to it. Don't miss the pain of Jesus in the garden either or the Garden of Gethsemane, see Him in all of His humanity, uh, and don't miss His response to that pain either. I mean, it was from the Garden that our Savior in His humanity demonstrated His great need for the Father. And please see that in this difficult moment, what did He do? He hit His knees and He prayed. And He might have gone a little further than that even. Hey, when you're facing difficult times in your life, again, the very best thing you can do is to hit your knees and pray. I mean, it was through His prayer that Jesus found the strength to serve. I mean, it was through His prayer that He discovered the courage to face His fears, and it was through His prayers that He was able to surrender His will to the Father. Uh, Andrew Murray writes it like this. He says, doing the Lord's work is not a duty performed in one's strength. No, that's impossible. He says, God must have the entire possession of us. He claims our whole heart and life, and He will give us the strength to keep His commandments, and to abide in His love. Well, Jesus started out of the garden, and soon a very familiar face emerges out of the darkness, Uh, someone that walked straight up to Jesus. It was Judas, uh, the one with clean feet. 
And he greets Jesus with a typical Mideastern uh, sort of a greeting. He leans over and he kisses Jesus on the cheek, and uh, that was the signal. And so Jesus was arrested and he was led away, and over the course of a very long night, he faced a series of trials and interrogations. Uh, But finally, with no real evidence against him, the high priest asked Jesus, he says, tell us if you're the Christ. Uh, Tell us, are you the Son of God? Now, it's a loaded question. Uh, It's a really decisive moment. I mean, Jesus would have done better to plead the fifth here, but he doesn't. He incriminates himself. And he responds, yes, I am the Christ. Well, they immediately lash out and accuse him of blasphemy. They spit in his face. They cover his head. Uh, They they are dragging him uh, before the highest Roman official then in in Israel, in Jerusalem, a Roman official by the name of Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate thinks they've lost their minds. And and he doesn't want to do anything with this trial. And he sends them over to the Jewish king uh, there in Jerusalem, a guy by the name of Herod. And Herod's upset. Uh, He doesn't want to upset Rome. And so he sends Jesus back to Pilate. And really what it is is just this all-night back-and-forth tug-of-war sort of event with Jesus. And through it all, he's bruised and he's beaten. And Pilate, again, refuses to believe that Jesus has done anything wrong. But because he fears a riot... Uh, in an already overpopulated Jerusalem, uh, Pilate, hoping to keep the peace, reluctantly gives in to these Jewish leaders' requests, and he gives permission for Jesus to be crucified. So they beat him, and they tortured him by whipping him across the back. Something like two-thirds uh, of people never even made it through. Uh, they, they, they couldn't endure this type of torture, but, but, but Jesus, he, he gets through it. He wouldn't die there. And they finally took him to the cross, and the gospel records just three short words. They crucified him. Now, not a lot of details, because you didn't need them. And everyone back then knew what crucifixion involved. I mean, it was the most horrific, most humiliating way uh, to die. And we know from history uh, and in other places in Scripture that they stripped him. Uh, They put a crown of thorns on his head. They nailed Jesus to the cross with uh, four to six-inch spikes. They put those spikes right through his wrists. And his ankles. Uh, crucifixion was a very slow death. It was a, a very agonizing death that involved a lot of intense pain and suffocation. Now, imagine if you're living during this day. Uh, if you lived in Jerusalem during this time, you would have been used to uh, seeing and hearing from one of these twice a day. Look, look at this picture here. This is a, um, this is a shofar, all right, that was blown twice a day uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, I, I bought one this week. Uh, I went on to Amazon. Believe it or not, you can buy a shofar on Amazon, and they run anywhere from two to three hundred dollars to up to a thousand dollars. But I found a just like the real one for four dollars, and uh, so I bought it. And uh, it's this plastic shofar, and well, you can blow in it. And so I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a little taste. I don't think that's what it sounded like, right? Okay, uh, that sounds a little bit more like a New Year's Eve kind of uh, party horn or whatever. But, uh, well, that might not be what the people of Israel heard, but the Israelites, they regularly heard the sound of a shofar twice a day, uh, two times a day. The shofar would sound, and it was a way of alerting everyone in the city uh, that something very significant was happening. And, and once it began to sound, everyone would stop. 
Everyone would stop everything they were doing. I mean, the merchants in the market, the children that were playing, uh, the wives as they would do their work, the men and their responsibilities, the students at school, everyone stopped when the shofar blew and they all grew silent. Now, why, you might ask? Well, the sound of the shofar was a signal that at that very moment a sacrifice was being made to God by the priest. It was a sacrifice of a lamb by the priest made on their behalf, and their silence was an expression of their respect and their gratitude for this sacrifice that was being given, a sacrifice for the substitute of sins. It was a pure and spotless lamb. Now, for thousands of years, Thousands of years before that, what God was doing when he started the sacrificial system was that through the shofar and through the sacrifice of the lamb, he was conditioning his people, the Jewish nation, to understand that sin brings death. And he was conditioning them twice a day throughout all of their lifetimes and through centuries that once in the morning and once in the afternoon, the shofar would sound and it coincided with the sacrifice of a lamb, a lamb that was slaughtered for their sins. And it was this ongoing reminder to the Jewish people that there is a cost associated with forgiveness. Now, all the while, over the year, keeping in mind the prophecy of people like Isaiah about the coming Messiah when he says that he would bear our sins, that he would be crucified, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, and that by his wounds we are healed. And then John the Baptist comes along at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and in John 1.29, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later on, we read from the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.22 that in fact, the law requires that nearly, nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The priest would blow the shofar twice a day, once at nine in the morning, and then again at three in the afternoon. And when was Jesus crucified? Well, Mark 15, 25 explains that it was nine in the morning. And when did he die? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that Jesus died at three in the afternoon. Shofar time. So here's the scene on Good Friday. Josephus, uh, the historian, records and estimates that around 2 million people found their way into the city of Jerusalem, pouring in for this Passover holiday, and people were coming from everywhere. But on this particular day, there was a real eeriness in the whole city because it was covered in darkness on that day. And there's all this commotion, and they didn't realize what happening, it was happening and what time it was because it was so dark when all of a sudden... At three o'clock in the afternoon, they hear this familiar sound. that moment, inside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, it gets really quiet as everyone knows that there is a sacrifice being made. But what most of them didn't realize is that the real sacrifice 
the final sacrifice was outside the city rather than inside the city. The ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice had been made. The fourth thing in your notes is that fourth location that Jesus visited for us was the cross. And it was on the cross that he models love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ is God's gift, his solution. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And before Jesus died, he spoke his final words. Uh, And in the Greek, it's the word tetelestai. It's this phrase, it is finished. Now, you might ask, what's finished? I mean, what does it mean? Well, tetelestai is a financial term. It means the debt has been paid. It's a merchant's term. I mean, it was used in accounting circles. It was Jesus' way of saying, it has been paid. The debt has been paid in full. The price of sin has been paid, resolved once and for all. And now there is a way to forgiveness. The debt of our sins has been covered through the death and the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the entire culmination of the story. 26 weeks that we've been working through up to now beginning with the fall in the Garden of Eden, resolved finally at the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus, He provides forgiveness, forgiveness from sins. Because of Jesus, He's provided a way back to God. Let's pray. God, we thank You for what You've done and provided for us through the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. But Lord, I'm praying uh, through the power of Your Spirit that it wouldn't just simply be about knowledge today. It'd be about life change. It'd be a reminder for those who know You but maybe have seemed to drift away. Uh, For those that know You and maybe are feeling a little lost and discouraged this morning, a little beat up. God, we thank You for the death of Jesus Christ and how his death covers all. But I also pray for the power of that truth for those who are here today and don't believe, Lord, that maybe today would be the day they give in once and for all and turn to you, surrender to you. Lives change forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.